0: You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast.
1: Happy Tuesday. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Man, we got a decent slate of NBA games tonight, and I say decent instead of great because... There aren't great teams playing, but there are great storylines behind the games, and we're going to get into what feels like a night to eulogize the Lakers' season and look ahead to see if the Nets really have something that they can offer up in their future or are just edging their way toward a play-in loss. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Before we could get to all that, we have to look back. It's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Last night... The men's title game NCAA basketball, Kansas wins an historic rally. This game felt all but over after, Courtney, I think almost everyone I talked to said, as great as this UNC run has been, as impressive as as they've been all tournament long, Kansas is too big, too strong, too fast, too good. And it looked like we were all wrong for almost the entirety of that game until Kansas came storming back second half, just like they've done all tournament long and managed to get the win. Pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, I can't believe we were so spoiled this weekend from Friday with the women's final four games all the way till Monday to cap off March Madness. And, you know, as it pertains to what was going down in New Orleans, I thought we were going to be in for the emotional hangover that came from that final four game between Duke and UNC. And that wasn't the case whatsoever. I know a lot of people were ready to turn the TV off at halftime with UNC playing the way that they were. And I'm glad that people didn't because that comeback there in the second half for Kansas, as you mentioned, Sarah, that's been their MO all season long, the way they did it against Providence in the sweet 16, certainly the way they did it against Miami, which I think that was the turning point for them in this Mm -hmm. tournament. And for Ochai Abaji, who ended up winning most outstanding player of the tournament, you know, hats off to him for leading that charge. But It felt good that it was able to live up to what we expected it would coming out of the Final Four, considering last year at this time when – the national championship game rolled around on that Monday night, Gonzaga had run out of gas against Baylor. So I was glad that like, it didn't happen this time around given what you would expect for North Carolina being as exhausted emotionally and physically as they probably were coming out of that Duke game.
1: Well, and that's probably part of it, right? We knew they didn't have a deep bench. And so that's partly how Kansas was able to take control in the second half. You just didn't have many people to go to. And then you've got an already injured Baycott who looked like he re-injured the ankle on a like loose floorboard or something. That was wild. Uh, Also, why? wild mark emmert the president of the ncaa who somehow still has a job uh and he said this as he was helping present the team its trophy fan base has been extraordinary we're so excited for you and here to present the
3: trophy is the head of the basketball committee tom Burnett, to, to coach self in the kansas city jayhawks the university of kansas jayhawks
1: yeah, Kansas City Jayhawks, not only was that embarrassing, but Seth Greenberg has a bit of a conspiracy theory, not only about Mark Emmert slipping up there, but maybe because he was thinking about something that we haven't talked nearly enough about when it comes to this Kansas team.
3: It's not a mess because this team's not going to be impacted. You've got to remember now, because of all that investigation that was 100 years ago, uh, it really impacted Kansas's recruiting. I mean, they only have one draft choice on this. I was trying to He was a three-star recruit. That team is made up of three- and four-star recruits. So the impact on Kansas has been significant in terms of recruiting. Bill Self figured out a way to win with him, but it was poetic justice. Uh, I want to know if he did it on purpose, though. <laughs> that's what I want to know. Is Mark Emmert, that's spiteful that he, he, he dropped that on purpose just to kind of get a little dig? But Bill's got the last thing.
1: Yeah, he's got the last laugh because they won, assuming, of course, it doesn't get vacated. Now, it sounds like Seth doesn't think it will. There still are five level one violations. Self and his assistant, Curtis Townsend, were uh, named personally. Uh, in engaging uh intentionally and willfully in ncaa violations uh this is still going on three years later as they're awaiting the independent review process uh seth doesn't think much could happen but is there any part of this that's a little less satisfying courtney if you are wondering if we might get a vacation of this win a couple years down the
2: road it just doesn't feel like it's going to happen right because of name image and likeness being a thing now before when this when this case when all these cases and recruiting violations and they all got levied against Kansas that was 2019. That's a completely different time in college sports. So it feels like because a lot of the things that are being levied against Kansas right now might actually be legal right. under name, image, and likeness. That it won't carry as much weight. And I know that Mark Emmert said the other day that the process to adjudicate the cases stemming from this FBI investigation has taken way too long. Well. Sorry. I mean, I feel like for the NCAA's Mm -hmm. timeline, they would have loved to have nailed Kansas before this process even, you know, got to the point now where it kind of feels like it doesn't actually matter. But I, I, yeah, I, did, I mean, the I rules did.
1: have changed. I do think that if you had an argument and you were uh, like PO'd about the fact that your team maybe played it straight then and they didn't, and just because the rules have changed now doesn't mean you didn't violate the rules that were in existence then. I could see that argument, but I do think, Courtney, you're right. In the end, people don't care as much. We'll ask you at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Courtney R. Cronin, do you really care about the alleged violations at this point, or does it feel like that ship has sailed? Uh, Speaking of caring, Courtney, we've been following along as the Lakers have tried to stumble their way into the postseason. It's not mathematically impossible, but at this point, going back and listening to the expectations for this Lakers team, understanding that they are very likely, while not mathematically uh, impossible, but very unlikely to be making the postseason at this point. You go back and listen to how they talked about this collection of talent. Brian Windhorst was on ESPN Daily today and had a great story just recounting how— Warped, I guess, the Lakers' thinking was looking back.
4: The first day of training camp, Polinka came to speak to the team, and this was captured on this great show that is done on Spectrum Sports in Los Angeles called Backstage Lakers. The team is sitting in their film room prior to their first practice of the season, and Rob Polinka is going to make a traditional opening speech as the team general manager. And he looks at everybody... And he says, you could say this room has the greatest basketball talent assembled on a team in recent history. (laughs) That's not revisionist thinking. That's what he actually said and thought.
1: It feels wild, Courtney, that anyone could have thought that, considering how many of us talked about their age and their missing pieces and the fact that they had gotten rid of so many of their defensive stalwarts. But that is what a lot of people, and I guess a lot of people inside that building, thought when the season
2: started. I just don't understand the logic behind it, though because it felt like it was piecemealed together in a way, like a house of cards that was quickly, if one thing went wrong, the whole thing was going to fall, fall, fall apart. And this is all stemming from what we knew the makeup of this team was last year and the lack of a bench, the lack of depth, the lack of anything, really to support LeBron James. And I just, how could anybody be surprised that this is the outcome, right? Like, and now as we are looking at this Lakers season on the cusp of being all but over and LeBron being injured and not playing and the Lakers only have a couple games left and they're the eleven seed, I just wonder what the fallout's going to yield from this season. Cause it feels like it could be very dramatic from coach firings to players being traded to maybe even LeBron not wanting to be there anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: That's very true. Interestingly, one holdover we know will be there is Westbrook and he will probably be the highest played player in the Highest played pay paid player in the NBA next year on the Lakers, and they're not going to be able to get rid of him because he's not going to make that money anywhere else. Uh, NBA games tonight: we got Sixers at Pacers, Rockets at Nets, Bucks at Bulls, Grizzlies at Jazz, and then at ten thirty Eastern, that Lakers Suns game, LeBron. Out for that one, and the scoring title very much in question now. It's Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless, no contract, no compromise. Uh, we want to eulogize the Lakers' season. I know it's not official, but we love to get ahead of these things. So at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Courtney R. Cronin, eulogize the 2022 Lakers in one tweet. We'll read those later. Also, we're a week away from postseason basketball. Nets feeling a lot of pressure. We'll talk to an expert about it next.
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
1: Spain, Courtney, Fitz. Courtney Fitz, Courtney Cronin, in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. I deserve that. I deserve that. Courtney Fitz. Uh, let's go to our buddy, Nick Friedell, ESPN NBA reporter, one of our faves. Nick, let's, uh, let's set the stage first for what exactly is going on with this Nets team. They're 10th in the East. They're 40-38, and 38, taking on the Rockets tonight. What's at stake for them both tonight and then the rest of the regular season?
5: The key for them, Sarah, is to get into a situation where they can get in that 7-8 game. Because if they get in the 7-8 game and they win, then they can get some time to rest and recuperate before that first-round series were to start. But in listening to Kyrie a few hours ago and KD yesterday, honestly, I don't really think they care (laughs) what seed they are because they are convinced that they can beat anybody who they come across. And whether or not that's true, we're going to find out here in the next week. And then after that, uh, so whoever they may line up against. But this has been their attitude all along. They feel like they have the talent and the confidence to roll through whoever may come in their path. And that is the way this team has been for the last few months. They still believe they can reach the highest of high levels, but only time will tell and if we've learned anything about the nets this year just when you think they've gotten things in order that's when things start to slide and just when you are ready to count them out completely they surprise you and they get rolling again
2: the word pressure has been thrown or thrown around quite a bit as you talk about that play in tournament and where the nets are currently seated and, and Kyrie irving has played in some pretty pressure-packed environments before throughout his NBA career, but he's talked about this week that he's never been in a situation where late, this late in the season all the games matter. So I'm wondering if you can kind of unpack what he was talking about, just about this late-season pressure due to the play-in game and them trying to solidify their position down the stretch. Like, Do you think pressure's going to be a good thing for this Nets team in the end or end up being what makes them combust in the postseason?
5: According with this Nets team, <laughs> anybody's guess <it> is, <laughs> is possible because I don't think they know. But to the point about Kyrie, I think Kyrie has only ever been in situations dating back to his early time in Cleveland, where either they were long out of it by the final week of the regular season, or he's been on the best teams or teams that were challenging for a title that you, you knew where their seed was going to be. So. is different this part of being amped for these last four games of the regular season and trying to figure out what seat you're going to be he hadn't been through that before and uh, as far as the pressure certainly with Kevin and Kyrie they've been through the biggest games that the NBA has to offer it's the rest of the group where you wonder how are they going to respond and anecdotally all this is part of the issue for the Nets. they have a team that Really hasn't been through a lot together because there've been so many guys changing uh, on the roster and who was healthy and who was available and now Kyrie is full time but he wasn't earlier in the year. Everything has been up and down all year long. So Bruce Brown the other day said that he didn't like the energy in practice <laughs> and that's not a good sign when you got a week left and the seedings are on the line. So. There are a lot of different ways to go, but anybody who is fully counting this Nets group out, I don't think that's the right way to go either because when you have a motivated Kevin Durant and a motivated Kyrie Irving, you still can get to the top despite what it may look like right now.
1: It's Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz. We're talking to Nick Friedel, ESPN NBA reporter ahead of Nets Rockets tonight. Listen, I was listening to ESPN Daily today, and Windhorst was particularly compelling when talking about why he isn't as confident in the Nets' ability to overcome the odds, even if they do make it in to a favorable position. They are twentieth in the league in defense. They would have to win fourteen playoff games just to get to the finals. No home court for any of them. And this team, even if KD puts up fifty-five and KD and, and Kyrie are clicking offensively, they can't get enough stops. So I'm curious where you find the optimist. Is it literally just there is no situation in which you will count out KD?
5: Sarah Spain, that is exactly right.
1: Okay, just making <laughs> and sure. The,
5: and the quote that is in my brain right now is, <laughs> because I was standing right there when he said it was, I'm Kevin Durant.
4: <laughs> you know who I am. <laughs> and,
5: and that is what I'm banking on. I've watched him for too many years be so talented offensively where you are watching a game and you're like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? He's doing this again, and, and he does. So as far as any optimism, look, I, I would side with Brian in that would I bet on this team going to the finals this year? No. I've watched them the last three months, day after day, and there are way too many red flags to think that they can clear every one of them and get through the hurdles that they're going to face in the postseason if they get there. But the reason why I would still have hope is because of Kevin Durant. He is that good. He is that dominant when he wants to be. And I know people will focus on that Atlanta game from the other night, but I'd also caution, look, they were playing without Dragic. They were playing without Seth Curry. They were playing without Bruce Brown. If they had those three guys, that's a win for this team. But that is the issue for Brooklyn and has been all year. They don't know who's going to be on the floor night to night. But if you have Kevin Durant, You are always going to have a chance.
2: So it looks like for now, at least, they're going to continue to rely on Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving to get themselves into the postseason. And we heard from Nets coach Steve Nash that Ben Simmons in this long-awaited return that's kind of been toyed with the last week or so, um, he's not going to make his debut in the regular season. He's also likely out of play in games. Do you give it any sort of odds that we're going to see him in the postseason at all? Or is this thing still so murky and so far from being sorted out that it's hard to even, like, put odds on it?
5: Gordon, I would be surprised if we saw him at all. I have watched this thing day to day for a few months now. And people have to remember, Ben Simmons is not doing anything. (laughs) He's done nothing on the floor. Since he got traded to Brooklyn, this back issue popped up soon after that deal was made when he got out of Philadelphia. But he has not been able to even go through a practice. So to think that he's going to start from zero, wherever he's at, whenever he's cleared to get back on the court, and be able to work his way back, not only mentally with all the uh, the, the, the mental health concerns that he had in leaving Sixers, but physically having not played now in almost a year, I think that is a very, very difficult pass. So it would surprise me if we saw Ben Simmons at all in the postseason, but the Nets don't want to close that door just because they don't know how far this is going to go, and they don't want to rule him out completely, knowing that even if he can
3: give him 10 to 15 minutes in some playoff game down the line in the future, That is better than the nothing that he's been able to provide since the deal went down.
1: Nick Friedel is with us. Nick, we have to go due to time and also because I want you to finish parking whatever car you're reversing for the entirety of this interview. (laughs) Uh, But before we let you go, I have to ask, we're asking the listeners to eulogize the Lakers season in one sentence. Do you have one?
5: Oh, so bad.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Mean, very mean. Usually we tend to try to find the positives in our eulogies, but fair. There are no Uh,
5: positives in the Lakers' (laughs) eulogies there, Spain. They are terrible. They've been
1: terrible all year. These are all of the lines of the eulogy. I will allow you all five lines. Oh, so sad. There are no (laughs) positives. They are so terrible. They've been terrible all year. Perfect. Uh, Nikki, we love you. Enjoy the game tonight.
5: I love you back, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Good stuff. From our buddy Friedel at Spain and Fitz, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Don't forget, the NBA is on ESPN Radio. Tune in tomorrow night as the Knicks host the Nets, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN Radio stations. Uh, you guys are already coming in hot with your eulogies. I asked for a eulogy of the season, the Lakers season, in one tweet. Most of you are sending me gifts, uh, but they're pretty good. Uh, we got careful what you wish for. Bye, bye, bye. Soft. I knew it. Uh, just a gif of a, uh, you know, Timberwolves player holding his nose like you stanky. Uh I like at Garsky House. Players are the worst GMs. I don't know who you could be talking about. Baseball's back. We'll talk it next.
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
1: Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain. Courtney Cronin, InfraFits on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Let's get out to Jeff Passan, ESPN MLB insider. Jeff, let's start with the rules. It feels like every time you're on, we have something new to address. Now we have a new technology to limit sign stealing. What are the early reviews, and can you explain to us how it works?
6: Am I really the right person to be brought on for, like, following rules, Sarah?
1: I don't know, man. You at least have to know them to break them, I guess.
6: Uh, it's a very fair point. <laughs> uh, this one, I got to be honest, this one's kind of cool. And cool and baseball are not two words that you find in the same sentence <laughs> together very often. But uh, it, it is called Pitchcom. And Pitchcom is technology that came out of the Houston Astros sign stealing scandal, Major League Baseball. Uh, had a crisis on its hands. And uh, the crisis was born of the fact that the Astros were able to pick up the signs uh, that catchers were putting down and relay them back to their hitters through the banging of trash cans. And, uh, you know, the the question was asked, okay, how do we make the the mousetrap to solve this? And Pitchcom uh, came from that. And what it is is the little device that catchers wear on their wrists and you press a button and it sends a verbal transmission into a little sort of uh microphone that's inside of a, a pitcher's cap as well as other infielders can wear it at the same time. So they know the pitch that's coming, they know the location that's coming, and uh the catcher doesn't have to hold down any fingers, go through any sign sequences, any of the the rigmarole that they do right now. And uh the early reviews have surprisingly to me been absolutely phenomenal. Uh the players with whom I've spoken really dig it. Uh front offices like it, managers like it. And uh it's been so successful that Major League Baseball I don't think went into the season thinking pitchcom was going to be in big league games, but uh here it is for any player or team to use it if they want.
2: So it's not mandatory as of right now at least, uh so far as we know, but Do you feel like most teams are going to use this technology at some form or fashion this season? Is there any other benefit? Like, could this speed up pace of play potentially in baseball?
6: I think it will speed up pace of play. I hope it'll speed up pace of play because God knows something has to. Um, (laughs) I I don't know if it's ever going to be mandatory. Uh, What's interesting to me, though, is the different iterations that the technology can take. Right now, it's on a catcher's wrist, right? The catcher pushes the button, and it gets transmitted to the pitcher and however many other players are wearing it. Imagine, though, if a pitcher is the one who's wearing it, and he gets to call his own game. Because Ah. the fact is, right, that pitchers already kind of do call their games. Catchers put down signs and make suggestions, but pitchers can shake them off. Um, if a pitcher is pressing the button, I don't think we're going to see a catcher shaking them off unless there's some sort of uh, mixed signal or something like that. And so uh, while pitchers are not allowed to wear the tack yet, it's something that Major League Baseball is at least looking into, and uh, I think they'll have a lot more information because I do think it's going to be quite prevalent this year.
1: Yeah, it feels like you could definitely have it go both ways as far as sending and receiving instead of just one direction. Uh, Very interesting stuff. Jeff Passat is with us here. In addition to that, a couple days ago we got the news that umpires will announce replay decisions this year. This is something that I have called for for a long time because there's a lot of confusion and we've just gotten used to the transparency of the two-minute report. We've gotten used to hearing refs in other sports announce what just happened. Why did this happen now and are you for it?
6: I mean, I'm definitely for it. I I've, I've thought from the start, I remember when we were talking about replay being implemented in baseball. I don't even know how many years ago it was now, but it seems like about a decade or so at this point, maybe even a little more uh, on home run calls and other calls. But uh, it's it's always felt like there's a dramatic moment at the stadium when the referee in football is about to announce the penalty or announce what happened. And I think baseball – uh, having that dramatic moment, and and if nothing else, just having an explanation of the rule for, for the fans in the stadium and for those watching on TV so that the onus isn't on the broadcasters but uh, is on the people making the decisions is a good thing. And then on top of that, uh, I just love it when people who have been silent in the public eye eternally suddenly get to learn what their voice sounds like. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone (laughs) wants to hear what Angel Hernandez's voice sounds like,
2: Mm -hmm. just to hear it,
6: right? Like, Mm -hmm. just to know.
2: (laughs) So as it pertains to sign stealing and the technology that has now been created to prevent it, Carlos Beltran, who is now a broadcaster with the Yes Network, decided to talk about a lot of different things early this week. And he... Made comments uh, that I know have made their way around social media about what happened in Houston and that, you know, he didn't stop the sign-stealing scandal the same way that no one else stopped it. And it looked like he was pointing the finger mainly at the organization and not any of his teammates or, or players within. How is this being received? Is there anything that we should take away from this? Like, I know it happened in 2017, and it feels like a lifetime ago but are there any sort of after effects here or anything that can come out of these comments? That's worth noting.
6: Courtney, I don't know if you saw Josh Reddick, who was an outfielder on that Astros team's comment on Twitter, but uh, he essentially said, uh, I didn't use it. And, and he wasn't trying to absolve himself as much as he was trying to say, I think, Hey, these were individuals who made individual decisions. And, to, to run from that and uh, abscond from the responsibility of, of that individual decision that you make as a grown man or a grown woman, um, it just doesn't, I, I don't think it plays well. And uh, the, the reality is Carlos Beltran is going to be among a group of players who are forever uh, rightfully branded as cheaters. Uh-huh. Now, Does that diminish his legacy? Does that make him any less of a player for the years before he was 40 years old when he was playing with the Astros back in 2017? In my eyes, it does not. I I still look at Carlos Beltran. Is a Hall of Famer as as a great player. I still look at Carlos Correa as a great player. Jose Altuve, as Josh Reddick said, you know Altuve didn't use the buzzer uh, <laughs> buzzer Freudian slip. Altuve didn't use the trash can system. <laughs> um, and and just for the record, by the way, I don't think there were buzzers either. So let's just get that <laughs> out there. Um, uh, you know there there were guys. Uh, the the two of them, Reddick and Altuve. Tony Kemp, uh, another one. Who, whether it's because they didn't feel like they got any benefit from it because they were morally opposed, whatever the case is, um, the, it wasn't part of the game. And uh, I think that we, we have to understand this is the sort of thing that is going to uh, forever follow around the Houston Astros. And understandably so. It was an egregious thing they did, just like it was an egregious thing what Mark McGuire did and, uh, what Sammy Sosa did and what Alex Rodriguez did and what others who were trying to enhance their performance did. And uh, I, I am able to separate uh, the actions uh, uh, of the person uh, from the way that I look at him uh, and the entire scope of his career. But I also don't forget it. It's right. part of his legacy. It's part of who he is, what he was, what he chose to be on the field. And, um, uh, you know, uh, to to try and say, well, this is others' fault. No, it, like, you made a choice. Live right. with it.
1: Jeff Passan is with us. You can follow him at Jeff Passan on Twitter. It's Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz. Hey, we got to let you go, but I want to ask you quickly, minute or less, there's been a handful of suspensions, some pretty big injuries. Of all that news that I'm trying to parse through as I get ready for the season to start, which of those is actually the most impactful in terms of uh, effect on a team?
6: Yeah, the suspensions were a bunch of jabrons, so you don't need to worry <laughs> about that. Uh, the the injuries are big. I mean, uh, I, I know you're a Cubs girl, but uh, Lance Lynn on the south side, right. uh, probably going to miss upward of two months uh, with a knee injury. But the big ones, Jacob DeGrom, um, mainly because I'm going to Washington on opening day and I'm not going to get to see him pitch, and that makes me very sad. But On top of that, the Mets have World Series aspirations this year, and I think they are a viable World Series contender with Jacob deGrom, and uh, if uh, the injury has a a stress uh, reaction in his scapula, the sort of thing that lingers, uh, it really puts a dent in the Mets' championship hopes. Mm.
1: So Mets, so deGrom, so sad before the season begins. Jeff, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it.
6: Ladies' pleasure is always mine. Thanks for having me.
1: That was the Progressive MLB snapshot brought to you by Progressive Insurance, insurance for motorcycles, boats, and RVs. For protection on the road and on the water, see how much you could save at 1 800 Progressive and Progressive.com. Coming up, Kyrie Irving feeling the pressure heading into the plane, but is the current playoff system in the NBA the best way to do things? A Hall of Famer says maybe not. We'll talk about it next.
0: Spain and Fits, the podcast.
1: All right, we were just talking to Jeff Passan about uh, some of the new MLB stuff, including uh, the attempt to allow technology to prevent sign stealing um, with this new Pitchcom system. And right around the same time we were talking to him, Michelle Steele was putting together a report on SportsCenter that she then posted to Twitter. And it's really cool to look at how it actually works and what they hear. And one of my favorite things is she posted some examples of what it sounds like in Spanish, too, in case the pitcher you're working with is Spanish-speaking. This is what it sounds like in your ear as a pitcher if your Spanish-speaking catcher calls for a knuckleball.
7: Bola de nudillo. Bola de nudillo. Bola de nudillo.
1: Okay, this is much better, though. This is apparently slider in Spanish. Slider. It's
2: slide there. There's an accent over the east. It's slide
1: there. It's slide there. Uh, I love it. You can do it in any language, any voice. uh, And it does seem like it could save some time. So look at that. Baseball doing something good. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight. ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM channel 80. Let's get back to some NBA because you're talking to Friedel earlier in the show about the Nets taking on the Rockets tonight. Kyrie Irving talking about the surprising pressure of late season how that's new territory for him here's what he said
6: no
5: i i think that was probably uh you know part of our our uh our own pressure that we're putting ourselves it's, it's just this must win now mentality and, and though it is there but you know we, we're in it for the long run so we, we're just going to play free and and do everything we can to prepare for this uh playing tournament whatever it is i've never been in a situation like this where uh late in the season all these games matter you know usually you're just trying to fine-tune your game just work on details and get some rest
1: fine-tune your game work on details tank for a better lottery I'm sorry what uh Courtney this is what this is music to the NBA's ears that he's talking about exactly what this is supposed to be the impetus for which is to care and try and play your best and play your stars at the end of the regular season
2: Yeah, it uh, eliminates the load management sort of thing that we've seen throughout the NBA. It makes these games, these final five games of the regular season over the next week or so, it makes them matter. And I feel like these comments, along with what Kevin Durant said the other day, that had he not gotten injured, maybe the season would have been different. I mean, there was that 11-game losing streak that I think he's pointing to there, and I think both of them know that they're looking around at each other saying it's us and it's no one else because they're the team they're the two that have to get this team into the postseason, right now they're the 10 seed in the play-in tournament, and that's mm-hmm. no guarantee at this point. Considering the way that they've played the last two games, with the loss to Atlanta, um, and just like what their mountain is once they get, if they get into the play-in tournament, and where they have to go from there. Usually Kyrie's on, you know, a Boston team or a, you know, a Nets team last year that was not in any danger of not making the playoffs, or even when he was in Cleveland, everything was already locked up at this point, right? So of course this is new territory for anybody who, who's getting used to this play in tournament format, and I think it ups the ante. I think it's a good thing, and I think yeah. that if, it, if they don't live up to their own expectations of facing this pressure and overcoming it, then there's going to be a lot of questions to be answered about the two of them specifically in the offseason.
1: I'm torn somewhat on it because I have been a proponent of it, saying that I do prefer teams carrying down the stretch. And I do think if you have, say, a team that's been uh, completely hit by injury but starts to, to, to really excel down the stretch and find their way into the plan and, and then disrupt things, you'd rather see them than a team that maybe was middling all season long but didn't take that big hit. At the same time, there are teams that if it was any other year in the history of the NBA, they wouldn't even have a shot. Right, mm-hmm. they, they didn't put together enough of a resume during the regular season. And, and so I, I, go, I go back and forth. So my podcast today that's out now, That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, is with newly named Hall of Fame coach George Carl. So while I had him, I asked his thoughts on the play-in game, and this is what he had to say. It's in our nod to the pod.
0: Here's this week's nod to the
1: The pod. The play-in tournament is another way. They're trying to make it so that teams don't tank at the end and have a reason to keep trying if they're near that 9-10. Do you like it, or you prefer the old format? I kind of like
7: the old way. Yeah. And what I think they should do is they should try to magnify the importance of the regular season. And the best way to do that is take the top 16 teams, no more conferences, no more divisions, just the top 16 teams, in one place, sixteen.
1: Yeah, that's and you'll true. You'll have I mean- some great
7: matchups. You'll have some unbelievable matchups in the yeah. first round.
0: For more, please subscribe and listen to "That's What She Said" with Sarah Spang on your smart speaker or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Courtney, you're a fan of the plane. What about this proposal? So
2: he's correct me if I'm wrong. He's saying no more Western Conference, no more Eastern Conference. Yep,
1: you just take the top, 16, top sixteen out of all of them and then 16 plays 1, 15 plays 2, 13 plays 3. Yeah, and so just on. like like the March Madness tournament, the women's right. and men's college
2: basketball. I like the idea, I don't think it would ever work. I I don't think anybody in the NBA would subscribe to that idea because I think if your teams like the Western Conference where, you know, it's so top heavy right now, is there an advantage to all of a sudden doing away with those first round matchups where, you know, Right now, you're taking a look at, like, the playing tournament, for example, like the Pelicans and the San Antonio Spurs. Do any of those teams end up scaring potentially a Phoenix Suns team? Right now, no. But if you do away with the conferences, then you could potentially see – I mean, if you're Phoenix, you could end up seeing – let's just throw this out. Like, let's say a Cleveland team that has had some peaks and valleys this year and could get dangerous in the first round. So, I um, I don't know. I, I – I, I like the out of the box idea of it. I think the NBA's trying. Like, it almost feels too drastic for the NBA to go that far right. to do away-, away with conferences. But I, I like the play in tournament. I know that it's been kind of controversial since it was invented a year ago, and not everyone likes it. But for seeding and making the, like, the last couple days of the regular season actually matter, it's up the ante on that, and the NBA's getting what it wants. And I mean, go look at the Eastern Conference and how much parity there is. It's because
1: of that. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing to look at is there have been so many seasons, Courtney, where we've talked about how one conference or the other was demonstrably better than, than the opposite and how we would rather have seen the 9 or 10 from, say, the East than the 6 or 7 from the West. So that would solve that problem. Right now you would get, let's see, the eight seed in the, in the West is a 41, or sorry, in the East is a 41 and 37 Hawks. The eight seed in the East is a 39 and 40. So you'd keep going down in the East before you'd ever get to Western Conference team. You would have probably mm-hmm. the Nets and the Hornets would make it, and then you'd you'd only have the top seven teams from from the West. You'd cut out the Clippers who are a sub five hundred team in favor of two teams in the East that are above five hundred. You know, this year it's not quite as noticeable. But certainly, there have been previous years where I think that's a really good plan. I guess to your point, some people would really miss the idea of the conferences and separating the the situation by virtue of those those rivalries and, and teams that we know.
2: Yeah, and I feel like some players in specific conferences uh, don't want to see other teams in the other conference until it becomes the NBA finals because they know that they'd be put out early. I mean
1: yeah, I guess that's why the seating would matter all the more. You need to put yourself in a position to not face one of those great teams uh, until much later. Uh, It's an interesting concept from George Carl. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more at Progressive.com. That's what she said is the podcast. You can hear George talk about his Hall of Fame career, who might induct him, why he fights with Mello all the time. It's a good one. Check it out. Coming up, how did Kansas complete their second-half comeback and win the Natty last night? Our next guest will tell us.
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
1: A big national title win for Kansas last night. It looked dire in the first half, down 16. But as we'd seen earlier in the tournament, they used whatever happened at halftime. I don't know if Bill Self is feeding them Totino's pizza rolls, spinach, or just a healthy dose of swear words. But whatever it is, it worked again. Kansas comes out on top. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin and for Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, SiriusXM XM Channel 80. Joining us to talk about the win and more is ESPN College basketball analyst Sean Farnham. Sean, long time no talk. Thanks for coming on.
3: No worries. It was a great NCAA tournament. I mean, just from a standpoint of like so so often throughout the course of the year, as you guys know, college basketball is fighting for any kind of conversation point, mm-hmm. any kind of talking point with the NFL, the NBA, college football. Uh, and, I, and I felt like this Final Four this weekend shined a light on the game that hopefully carried through and, and entertained enough fans that may not be watching all the time to say, you know what? That was pretty fun. I might watch again.
1: Yeah, it was uh, It was a lot of ups and downs. and Obviously, the Duke-UNC was sort of the capper, but that wasn't the final game. Last night was the title game. What did you see from Kansas? Now, uh, neither team was shooting well. We saw that, but... Did they do the same things just more effectively in the second half or was there a game plan change that you saw?
3: I, I think they started competing better at the defensive end of the floor and when they started pressuring North Carolina Carolina got a little loose with the basketball 14 of the 18 points off of turnovers came in the second half and and as, as you guys know when that happens it, you know you start getting transition buckets you start scoring. Uh, and and all of a sudden it becomes infectious, and and, and you start believing a little bit more. And and what they did and and how they approached the start of that second half, I I put out a tweet that was like the Undertaker sitting up off the mat. You know, I mean, they looked like they were dead in the first half, and then all of a sudden they came out and they sat back up and were ready for a fight. And they brought that fight to Carolina in the first couple of minutes and coupled their intensity with the fact that Leaky Black went out with his fourth personal foul when it was 46-41, and to me, that was kind of the changing point of the game because up until that point in time, he had done a great job, in Ochai Abaji, and while Abaji wasn't the guy that got going in the second half, it was Martin, it was Wilson, it was Christian Brown, uh, the, the defense had to change with how they covered because Leaky Black could, could one-on-one cover Ochai Abaji, and you were pretty comfortable with that. But then without that, you had to step, rotate, and shift your defense a little bit differently, and that allowed some of those other guys to get loose and find a seam and attack.
2: Can you explain to me, then, what happened with UNC in the final, like, 15, 16 seconds of the game? Hubert Davis has a timeout that he didn't use in the right time, and it felt like they went into panic mode. How did this whole thing unfold in the final seconds that, you know, allowed Kansas to run away with that win?
3: I, I don't think it was panic mode at all. I think he had faith in his team that they know that they've practiced, and been in those situations, they practice to be able to execute. Now they turned the ball over. Kansas then steps out of bounds, not once, but twice. Uh, The the play that they had run uh, or scheduled to run at the end that would have got them the three-point shot, I firmly believe it was for Brady Manick. Uh, Manick set the down screen and then was supposed to come off a screen from the opposite side uh, that would have freed him up on a corner on an on-ball screen for love, that he would have either had the shot or it's the kick to Manick, but Manick fell. And when he fell... Uh, he, he stumbled that allowed his defense to recover and that forced love into the shot that we saw at the end of the game. Uh, but it certainly wasn't the way that the play was supposed to be executed. It just was the way that the play was executed. And a lot of times in those moments, we see this, whether it's college football, the NFL, uh, whatever, when you get to the finals moments, there, there are moments in there where things don't go necessarily as planned. That's not necessarily a reflection of being ill-prepared or not being ready, but it's, it's just that the moment gets you. And for Brady Manic, that's why you saw Hubert Davis walk over and console Brady Manic before he went to shake hands with Bill Self um, because you're talking about a guy that transferred in from Oklahoma, had a great season, had a great first half, uh, was unable to get freed up in the second half, and that was a moment that, that could have been a big moment for them. I was actually surprised that Kansas didn't foul up three that would have uh, sent them to the free throw line because so much would have to go right at that point for Carolina uh, to be able to to score three points. Although, given the fact of the strength of their their offensive rebounding, maybe that played in a little bit of the role of why Bill Self didn't want to foul in that situation. Um, but overall, I, I think that Hubert Davis, in, in year one, you're replacing a legend in Roy Williams. And for the ACC, this is a, a, a transitional phase for the conference. In college basketball so frequently, the consistency isn't the players, the consistency is the coaches. And you lose Roy Williams, he comes in. He ends Coach K's home career with a loss. He ends Coach K's career with a loss at the Final Four for the first time ever that those two teams met and took Carolina in an improbable run when you look back at even late January when they, they got abs- you know late January when they were struggling and they lost to Miami, that they put themselves in this situation. And I, I think there's a lot of positives for Carolina, a lot of positives for Hubert Davis and this program moving forward.
1: It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz as we talk to Sean Farnham. You can follow him at Sean Farnham on Twitter, ESPN College Basketball Analyst. You mentioned Coach K's season ending. There have been some rumors that maybe, just maybe, he comes back. Have you heard anything about this, and how unlikely would that be?
3: Uh, I think it's very unlikely. However, uh, tomorrow on, on Sirius XM Basketball at Beyond, I'm doing an hour interview. I'm posting an hour interview with coach K, uh, so i I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to have that opportunity to talk to him and uh, you know we're going to talk about uh, what the season was like for him where he's at right now uh, where how he sees his positioning in the game of basketball moving forward um, and it's going to be an hour-long conversation that's just he and I uh, talking about what he takes away from the season what he took away from this run uh, and how he sees himself not only in the game now but also in the game moving forward
2: Hubert Davis set the bar pretty high for himself in this first season. I'm wondering, is that not necessarily, like, a bad thing? Certainly it'll help with recruiting and where UNC is viewed nationally as a program, but, you know, what does it mean for him going forward, given everything that the Tar Heels went through from, you know, being a 14-19 and 19 team two years ago to rebuilding to get to this point? Like, where do they go from here, and what should the expectations be around that program?
3: Well, listen, it's it's North Carolina. The expectations are always going to be high. I mean, that's like when, you know, I'm a Bruin. so every time we hire a coach at UCLA, what is the standard? Well, the standard is we only hang national championship banners. That's the standard of the program. When you look at Carolina, you look at the legacy of elite-level players, uh, great tournament runs, national championships themselves. That is the standard. So when you take that job, you kind of understand what that standard is. Uh, Look, does it increase expectations because in year one you have this much success? Sure, it probably accelerates the speed in which people anticipate uh, that the consistency will be for the program. But it doesn't change overall what the expectations are when you inherit a program like North Carolina. I think John Shire's taking over a program at Duke next year. He's got one of the best recruiting classes, the best recruiting class in the country outside of Arkansas. And and you kind of look at it and go, okay, well, gosh, like expectations are that that Duke's going to be a top-ten team all season next year too. If you look at the way, 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 very too overly early Top 25 that came out on ESPN.com today. I think they had Duke at number six. So expectations for John Shire to replace the legend is is exactly the same thing that I think Hubert Davis uh, was, you know, now coming into year number two. So the thing for it is, can you go out, can you find the right players that are going to consistently allow you to play the style of play in which you want to? Uh, you know, when you look back at this season for Hubert Davis, I think one of the things that, that as you watched the interview even last night during the course of that game, mm. he is a very he delivers his message Energy. in a very direct way, <laughs> in a respectful way, and <laughs> a passionate way. And I think his players respond from it.
1: Hey, Sean, we got to let you go. It's Sean Farnham with us here on Spain and Fitz. So two words as an answer to this question. Coach K is out. Who is the best coach in men's college basketball?
3: I would say right now it's Jay Wright or Scott Drew.
1: Mm, yeah. Jay Wright, man, could have really cut it. Uh, five titles for Coach K to three for him, but looking at, uh, looking at five to two still for those two. Awesome stuff, Sean. Thanks for the insight. We look forward to that interview with Coach K. Talk to you. It's better breakfast o'clock at Wendy's, so get a bacon or sausage, egg and cheese biscuit for $1. Thanks to Sean Farnham for the insight coming up. Should be expecting a different looking Lakers team next season. We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz.
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast
1: we got a bunch of uh, asks for you out on Twitter, at Sarah Spain, at Courtney R. Cronin, at Spain and Fitz. You can jump in on eulogizing the Lakers' season in one sentence. You can tell us how you feel about Kansas winning the national title with those violations hanging over their heads. Uh, Go check that out. Chime in. We'll pay those off a little later in the show. We were talking about the NBA slate of games tonight, which includes the Lakers and the Suns. No LeBron James. He's ruled out of tonight's game with left ankle soreness. It'll be his third missed game in the Lakers' past four. They've now lost six in a row. They're two behind the Spurs for the final spot in the play-in tournament. They can actually be eliminated from the postseason tonight, Courtney, if they lose to the Suns and the Spurs beat the Nuggets on the road, even if they don't get eliminated tonight. It is mathematically possible for them to make it, but it feels like the end of the road for a Lakers team – that had high expectations coming in. And now that leaves us with the scoring title argument that some were making for why LeBron said he was still having the time of his life this year and maybe something that was still important to him even as his team looked like they didn't have much future in the postseason. Right now, he is pacing the NBA in points per game just ahead of Joel Embiid and and, uh, Giannis. But he's two games short, Courtney, of playing the requisite number of 58 contests for the 82-game season. That's 70% of a team's games in order to qualify. The only workaround would be uh, this sort of lesser-known thing that the player would have had to lead the category had he played the required number with his current category total. So they do it essentially by your effective scoring average. And he would be short right now. So, Courtney, he doesn't get it from the workaround. He doesn't get it having played two games short he would have to play at least one more game, maybe against a terrible Oklahoma City Thunder uh, squad, and would have to score a pretty serious, at least 30-plus points in that game to qualify. How important do you think that is for LeBron? Will he do that just to get that scoring title?
2: You've got to take something away from this season, right? Like, you have to walk away from the season knowing that it wasn't all a wash, and that you didn't just play GM for a season to get Russell Westbrook here and then not make the NBA finals. And everyone's questioning about like what this Lakers team is. That's why I think he's played so many games here when he shouldn't be with it's first. It was the knee. Now it's the ankle and it matters to him. It matters to him a whole lot. So I'm wondering, can you have him suit up and potent and effectively not do anything if they're eliminated from the playoffs? Can you just have him out there for two games? Yeah. Kind of you, just using this as an example, Remember when Hubert Davis said, like, I don't care what's going to happen with Armando Baycott. Like, I might have him out there as a decoy, but he's going to be out there knowing that he yeah. had that sprained yeah. ankle. Could you do something similar with LeBron James? Just like, I, I don't know if him as a competitor would just stand out there or, like, be a, you know, a shell of himself. But wouldn't that potentially be the one other workaround where he he's actually playing It would be, it?
1: but it would be except for... The, uh, the other two guys in the, in the race would have to essentially have low scoring games or, or not, or, or not affect theirs at all. Right. Um, right now, LeBron's at 30.3. Joel's at 30.2. Giannis is at 30.1. So if he stands out there and does nothing, he would have not enough points and it would be worse, right? Cause it would bring down his average. And those two guys would presumably go out and score, and theirs would go up. So yeah, he has to do something. He has to either not play, and they have to lower theirs enough for him to have an effective scoring percentage that's high enough, or he would have to go out and have one game played, absolutely crush it, up his effective scoring percentage, still fall short in terms of games played, but qualify that way. So things aren't looking good for LeBron in either case, for his team or for the potential scoring title. Yeah. I'm looking up there. There's, I mean, they've got
2: Oklahoma city at home on Friday.
1: Yep, that's like, the one.
2: That's they, they, the one you can circle. Or it's like, you go can off LeBron. Send him you can out there. Just win it that absolutely
1: <laughs> shove a whole ton of drugs at him. So he can't feel anything and see what happens. Uh, not recommended uh, kids out there. Speaking of the Lakers, by the way, Spain and Fitz Sarah Spain, Courtney quoted in for Fitz doc. Rivers being floated as a potential candidate to coach the Lakers. This, uh, if a disgruntled Sixers team decides that he's the one who's going to draw the ire and the blame for uh, a season of of missed and underperformed expectations. And, of course, Frank Vogel not expected to have a return visit or at least questions about that. Courtney, he, uh, after winning the title, did not get the usual two-year extension, just one year, and then the disappointment of this season. Feels like Vogel is out. Do you see Doc just hopping on over to the Lakers? Well,
2: if uh, James Harden gets what he wants, and apparently that's to have Mike D'Antoni be his coach again, which has been floated around for you know about a week now, and makes you wonder why Doc made those comments last week in in mm-hmm. the loss of the Bucks. That oh no, it wasn't it wasn't the bench; it was James. Um, is that a little loaded? Might that have had to do with the the fact that he knows
1: potentially that James Harden it felt to me like it was just out? honesty that Harden had shot the most. So to say, the bench had been disappointing when they hadn't really shot anything. I think it was more of a clarification than what we assigned to it, but potentially. Well, if that's the
2: case and he is without a job, I don't think he's going to be without a job for at least in the Eastern Conference for too long. I mean, he may end up in the situation where it's either him or Quinn Snyder, who's also been like thrown in that mix for a while now for the Lakers job because, you know, lame duck coach. I mean, for Frank Vogel, yeah, he's tied down through 2022, 23. Those are very easy contracts to get out of, and I just feel like LeBron James when it comes to finger pointing. Um, first, it's the front office for not doing anything at the trade deadline, and you know, might there be something here at the end of this season right. where he's like, "I want him gone." He's got. He well, realizes he, his. His days playing in the NBA are are numbered, and And I don't think he's going to want Frank Vogel as his head coach anymore. Just
1: as likely as Harden pointing the finger at Doc and getting what he wants, even if there's plenty of evidence to say that he's a part of teams uh, falling apart down the stretch as well. It's Spain and Fitz. Draymond Green was on ESPN Radio earlier today with uh, Canty and Amber, and he put in his vote for the MVP this year.
7: You know, Joel has been great. He's been incredible. I think Joker's been great. He's been incredible. Um, Giannis has been great. He's been incredible. But I asked the question, I posed the question, what's the criteria? Because, you know, there's years where we've heard, oh, the best player on the best team is going to win. The best player on the best team is going to win the MVP award. You know, there's been years where we saw someone on the sixth seed or seventh seed win an MVP award. Uh, if Joker's to win again and they do finish in and and fifth or six, then you know you have that narrative. Devin Booker's not even being mentioned in the category. They're leading the league by in, in team record by a long shot, and he's been absolutely incredible. And so I asked what is the criteria? And at what point? At when does it get to a point to where it's not just someone saying, "Oh well, I like the season this guy had," and, it, and it's no merit. It's it's nothing. You know, it's it's nothing that's set in stone that says, oh, he did X, Y, and Z. He checked off these boxes. This guy wins the MVP. So for me personally, and what I value, Devin Booker's the MVP of the NBA.
1: Yeah, I mean, he said a lot there, and and some of it, you know, I think, I don't think anyone's just like, oh, I like that guy's game. I think that it depends on whether you look at advanced metrics, whether you look at the quality of the team versus just the player. But I think if I have this right, and I can't find the stat right now, the last five players to reach certain benchmarks across scoring rebounding mm-hmm. assists and had the best record on his team have yeah. all won so booker would be the first in six straight for that not to happen 12
2: players in nba history that have averaged 25 points five assists and five rebounds or more per game on the team with the best record in the nba all 12 of those Thank went you. on to win the mvp there it is so phoenix clinch number one overall seed for already Booker's averaging 26.6 points, five rebounds, and 4.9 assists per game. So by that
1: criteria, that's oh. probably the very stat that Draymond yeah. Green was
2: referencing. Although so.
1: this, this is such a tight MVP race that you almost have to throw out previous uh, benchmarks that earned you the title because it is the closest and most highest performing of, of all of the, the fields that we've seen, which has been impressive. Tiger, this could be impressive might return to the Masters Thursday. What will a successful outing look like?
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
1: Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, Infra Fitz on ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Earlier in the show, we asked you whether the violations that are still sort of hovering over the Kansas program bother you at all. Is there any chance this will be vacated? Were you thinking about that at all? Or since the rules have changed, does it not really bother you? Um, Are you kind of cool with it? Even if they were technically cheating then, now it doesn't matter. Well, 51% of you said rules were rules. You do care about potential violations from Bill Self in the Kansas program. 49% say they don't care. It's a non-story now. And Courtney, some folks had a couple thoughts on it. Untouchable Caz One said, retroactively taking the title away from the young man, men that busted their butts ain't the move. Bill Self should be punished, though. Rules were the rules. At Jody OBX said, the only schools get the book thrown at them are places like University of Southwest Texas Farm, Cattle and Tractor. <laughs> uh, and then at infinitively, I want the guys who went to prison released. That's an interesting angle on all of this, right? That there are people who actually served and are serving jail yeah. time for infractions that we now consider to be okay with the new NIL and other rules. Um, I don't think Kansas will get their title vacated. There might still be some punishments, though, left to be uh, meted out after this final investigation is done.
2: Yeah, and I think that at this point, in the era of name-image likeness that came in like a wrecking ball last summer, we've almost forgotten about the fact mm. that the NCAA and their infractions committee thinks that they have you know, things like subpoena power and things that they don't actually have because they're not a legal entity, word to the wise. Um, but... It almost feels like they don't even matter anymore, right? Because p- players are making money, and the stuff that teams and programs used to get in trouble for, under today's, you know, new bylaws, don't actually matter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in the teetering on the edge. Like unless this championship somehow gets vacated, I don't care one way or the other. Right. And I know it's that's probably the wrong forget. way to like look at
1: it, but. Right. That's just where I lie with it. It's going to be easy to forget because it's hard to convince yourself that all of the other programs were doing it right. Like, I am a stickler for rules. I do think you should be punished for cheating. But there is something to be said for the fact that, like, you kind of have to believe that everybody was doing it. Um and that makes it a little tougher to figure out what the punishment should be. It's Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin hanging out with me tonight. Fitz is uh, taking a little time off, a little staycation maybe, a little travel. I'm also off starting tomorrow for the rest of the week as I do my my uh, Grand Canyon trip that I've been talking about and training for for a Early while. Early reviews have... Uh, Yeah, early reviews have me uh, making it alive out of the canyon, but we'll see next week if I actually do. Uh, Also, early word is that Tiger Woods will play in the Masters. He made it official this morning, said as of now, he plans to compete at Augusta National, five-time winner there. But, of course, that was before the accident that had many of us worried that not only would he not play golf again, but potentially not walk again, Courtney. It's a miraculous thing that he is even considering this. Here's what he said this morning at the presser.
4: Well, as of right now, I feel like I am going to play as of right now. Um, I'm going to play nine more holes tomorrow. Um, uh, My recovery has been good. I've been very excited about how I've recovered each and every day, and that's been the, the the challenge that's why I came up here and, and tested out for 27 holes because we, we played the par 3 course Charlie couldn't help himself <laughs> um, so was able to play uh, 27 holes that day um, and at home testing it but it's the recovery you know how, how am I gonna get all the you know, swelling out and recover for the next day and uh, my team has been fantastic and worked very hard
1: Yeah, Courtney, golfers are not allowed to use carts along the course at Augusta National, and Tiger said the walking would be the most. It's about Mm -hmm. 6-plus miles to walk 18 at Augusta with changes in terrain and elevation. It's more than 70 feet to the green on the eighth hole alone. Uh, So that's where his leg and and the injuries are the biggest issue. Uh, How do you hear what he said this morning?
2: We, I, I'm not surprised because when this came out on Sunday, when he sends the tweet that, yes, he is going to Augusta. Yes, he's going to do the practice rounds. Yes, he's going to see how he feels and, you know, be a game time decision. He's not going to put all that work in and not go through this, right? Like that's where my mind went days ago. And now we're on the cusp of being two days away from that first round on Thursday. And, you know, this isn't surprising. And and also to your point about the physical toll this is going to take on him in walking because you know like you have to petition to use a golf cart Casey Martin was the golfer who had the golf cart issue brought all the way to the Supreme Court in 2001 he had a a genetic condition that prevented him from walking the entire distance of of these golf courses like we had Lisa Lisa Cornwell on game night the other night, Uh, she does play-by-play for, you know, PGA Tour Live, ESPN Plus, and she said that there was no way, this was Sunday, that no way that Tiger Woods was going to be in the Masters Mm. and using a golf cart. And, I mean, somebody who knows him really well, you know, golf with him as a kid, the whole thing, and so I thought about that, I'm like, I can understand it because Tiger's such a fierce competitor that I don't think he would have made this track to go. Like, if he's going to do it, he's going to go all the way. And and I think for him, 80% of the way doing it would be, hey, I'm going to play the Masters, but I'm going to use a golf cart. He doesn't want anybody thinking that he has any sort of upper hand or any sort of advantage. So, I mean, this guy also walked the 2008 U.S. Open and won it with a broken leg. So are we surprised that, you know, coming off of his horrific injury where he nearly lost his right leg, according to him last year, that he's going to do this, you know, now I'm not surprised in the slightest.
1: Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And what we do know is that there have been moments in the past where Tiger has suffered from other injuries and pulled out of tournaments. So him playing and starting the tournament doesn't mean he'll finish. It is possible that it, amidst the, the, the multiple rounds and the miles walked and everything, the pain is too much or it affects his game too much. Um, but you mentioned Casey Martin, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court for that. Uh, it, it means a lot to the tour, and it means a lot to the golfers to not use a cart. So that's why I think you're right when, when you know he, he just said, I wouldn't use it anyway there's a stigma that comes with it. So even if I could ask for it, I'm not going to. And that is why this presents much more of a challenge in terms of whether or not he can actually get not just the first day or the second day, but all of the rounds in, uh, he was asked what it would look like, uh, for this to be a successful weekend at Augusta.
4: Well, I think that the fact that I was able to get myself here to this point is, is a success. And now that I, and playing, now everything is focused on how do I get myself into a position where I'm on that back nine on Sunday with a chance, um, just like I did, you know, a few years ago.
1: Yeah, I think I completely agree with him. I don't think he needs to do anything other than show up at the Masters and play golf for this to be a success. I think it is unbelievable that he is even considering it. I thought it was unbelievable that he was even able to play in a fun father son yeah. tournament. No,
2: I agree with you and I mean this is so different from 2019 for very obvious reasons because his comeback then, which we will all remember in him winning the Masters, his 15th um, you know, his 15th major that he had won at that point, like that was different for a lot of different reasons because he had fallen off the golf hierarchy here. It's coming back from something that nearly killed him. Like Mm -hmm. literally was the worst possible thing that could have happened. And, you know, 13 months ago, we're having questions of, will this guy be able to walk again? Just being there in itself, that's a victory. Whether he ends up like, you know, in the final pairing or out early because he physically is not feeling his best.
1: Yeah. And I'll say, Courtney, I've written about Tiger Woods in the past. Uh, A lot of people have not enjoyed my writing on Tiger Woods in the past. It has been about the mixed emotions of rooting for and feeling moved by someone who has these redemption stories Mm -hmm. while simultaneously considering the effects of his actions on others. A lot of people don't like to do that. It seems to be my wheelhouse, uh, which is why (laughs) I get a lot of death threats, uh, because I try to think about things in a more nuanced way instead of using the athlete and idol uh, kind of worship that tends to be pervasive in our conversations around sports. And I think his ability to recover from rock bottom and find success across multiple different times of his life is admirable but doesn't erase the effects he's had on others. And this time is much easier for me to just celebrate the incredible comeback from injury. Even if you think he was speeding, he was unsafe, the accident was somehow brought on by his own choices. I think that's a little bit uh, lacking in empathy and sympathy for all of us to have been possibly in a moment like that. Um, Even if you think that, though... Like, this is a guy who, this is much cleaner of a comeback than the issues that he faced in the past. And it's easier for me to just marvel at it Mm -hmm. than to be judging of it uh, this time. And I think he has been able to have so many of these comeback tales and inspired so many people who saw in themselves someone who had fallen, someone who had made grave errors, someone who had made mistakes and could still redeem themselves, that it inspired a lot of folks when he did that. Um, this one maybe less so because it's just physical, but it's still mighty impressive. Now I think
2: honestly more so for this one, because you know, 2019 was coming back from, I became irrelevant for a couple of years. This is, I nearly died and now I'm trying to yeah. come back and, you know, be at the, you know, win the masters be, you know, be a part of it. So, I mean, it feels like it's a story that literally everyone can get behind. Like I, I'm with you, I mean he has a complicated legacy, and I just feel like it almost feels like that like part is like something that we're not touching this time around, yeah and it it's was ver- it's very different because twenty nineteen it was worth bringing all that into it, and it, it yep. was a necessary part of the conversation this time it's the guy might you know his right leg goodness, I mean like I think about it like in just everything that he went through surgically right. to get back to this point he He's lucky to be alive. So he like is. we should celebrate to the that of, part of, of it. Of
1: his participation, SVP said it right. Tiger Woods doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. Yep. When he plays at this tournament, it'll be everything. ESPN radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance makes bundling home and auto easy. Learn more at progressive dot com. Coming up, it's time to eulogize the Lakers. They're on the brink of missing the playoffs, and you guys have a lot to say about it. It's next.
0: Spain and Fitz, the podcast.
1: There's actually a great story up now. On .com, why the conversation surrounding NBA MVP is far deeper than Nikola Jokic versus Joel Embiid. Uh, Good read. You should check it out. It makes the case for a whole bunch of, I think, 10 different players in the mix. But as we were talking about that, speaking of Embiid, he is trying to make his last efforts toward earning that award going off tonight. He's got 39 points, 11 boards, and an assist right now as the Sixers are leading the Pacers 107-98 just at the end of the third quarter. So, Uh, We know that LeBron is out of action. Giannis currently taking on my Bulls. Uh, The Bucs are up about 14 in the second right now with about 8-plus to play in the second. Giannis just two points. Uh, So he's not putting together the kind of effort he needs to uh, send home uh, his MVP campaign. Meanwhile, Devin Booker will be in action tonight against the Lakers. Suns-Lakers without LeBron. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Uh, Courtney, we were talking about the Lakers and Suns, and the Lakers could be eliminated tonight if they lose to the Suns and if the Nuggets lose to the Spurs at home. It's not the only opportunity for the Lakers to be bounced from the postseason. It seems inevitable at this point. So we asked folks to eulogize them in one tweet. Uh, We got some really good ones. We got a lot of just GIFs, but here are a couple. uh, At John Genze said, taking their talents to the offseason. At Eric Rogers here said, what a waste brook of a season. The fake Mark L seemed like a good idea at the time. It did not. Uh, This one I liked using the real format of a eulogy. At MSL Onaker twelve twenty two seventeen. An aging team with unrealistically high expectations met its merciful end tonight. They are survived by many frustrated and disgusted fans. In lieu of flowers, please send resumes for GM and head coach. I, like <laughs> Pretty that good. One. I am Dan Demann. We are gathered here today, in which we would normally mourn yet another lost season of either the Cubs or Bulls. Take your pick. Unnecessary shade, by the way, that's an editorial for me. But instead we pay our respects to the twenty two Lakers season, a remarkable descent following two whole seasons from winning a chip. Amen. That's a great eulogy. Yeah. He put time a remarkable and of that one remarkable descent after just winning a title. Unless of course you thought there was an asterisk on the bubble championship. Uh, at Cine Perry three eighteen, night night, La Flop. <laughs> Short but sweet. Another one, short but sweet, by Felicia. Also, we did not ask Stephen A. to write a eulogy, but he did anyway during the pregame tonight. The Lakers are a national basketball atrocity. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, That's a direct quote from Stephen A. Uh, At Fredlow71, you are better off watching Winning Time. More entertaining, if that's fair. Uh, Angry Bears fan, dad man, the 22 Lakers, so full of high expectations, shooting stars, Broken down and burnt out too soon. They leave behind disappointed fans such as Jack Nicholson, who now has nothing to do. Each player's success at the back was offset by their failure on the court, life's fragile balance. (laughs) Pretty good. And I think the best one, Courtney, by far, was not in fact a eulogy, but a repetition of something that LeBron said himself early on in the season. And if you can remember this far back, I commend you. Because it feels like a lifetime since we heard of this team being put together and the expectations and excitement that so many had. This is the exact words of a tweet from LeBron James uh, who wanted us to bring the same energy now as we were bringing at the start of the season. And we are happy to do that, Courtney. We are happy to bring the same energy. As soon as I can frickin' find the tweet, because the one that I had pulled up has somehow been deleted since. I don't know why. The person was getting a whole lot of credit and and good commentary for having brought it out, but uh, of course, here I am scrolling. This is a eulogy for my career. I have a eulogy, but mine's more of like a headline. Like I I think of it, just pull the plug, which I know is kind of morbid and sad, but like, you know, pull the plug. Don't send him out there. Okay, here it is. LeBron James. Keep talking about my squad, our personnel ages, the way we play. We're past our time in this league, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do me one favor, please. And I mean, please, keep that same narrative energy when it begins. That's all I ask. Hashtag thank you, crown. So, Court, I think we're bringing that same energy. We are.
2: Narrative energy.
1: Whatever the heck a narrative energy is. Narrative energy. I don't know. We'd get muted on around the horn. We're not allowed to say narrative energy. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Your small business keeps you on the go. Progressive Commercial Insurance keeps your policy within reach with our easy-to-use mobile app. Learn more at progressivecommercial.com. Yeah, the whole conversation, if you had started the season, Courtney, and we've been doing that a lot less, I think, in recent years. The NBA has been less predictable. We used to start the season and be like, we all know it's going to be, you know, the Cavs and the Warriors, so this is all pointless. We're doing that a lot less, but we still did have very high expectations for the Nets and the Lakers. And if you had told me when the season started, the Lakers wouldn't even be in the postseason. I was dogging their age and everything else about them, but not even in the postseason. And that the Nets would be barely hanging on to the plan. That's wild. No,
2: I agree. And I feel like I don't want to call it like the excuse train just starting up, but like what AD said on Sunday after the game of, hey, well, you know, if me, Braun and, you know, Russ were all playing together, it's only been like 20 some games. Like that's mm-hmm. probably the reason that we're in this spot. Where have I heard that before? Did that mm-hmm. not happen last year mm-hmm. with James Harden, Kyrie mm-hmm. Irving, and Kevin Durant, and then obviously what all unfolded with the Nets this year? Like, is that just the convenient way of looking at these things of, hey, we built something to last. Oh, wait, injuries knocked us out. That's what we're going to rely on as the excuse every single time. When, well- does, it, when does it become, hey – we made some really poor decisions with our personnel, right? These people That's, should not be on the team. That's the reason that we did not make the playoffs this year,
1: right? Because you look, and I guess this this is more an anomaly than the norm, but you look at a team like the Grizzlies, they've been outstanding without John Morant. You know, this, it is possible to have your superstar be out and still be a winning team. And that has not been the case for the nets and the, and the Lakers when they've missed their best players. A lot of it is defense, too. Lakers 23rd in defense this season after being first last year. The Nets 20th defensively in the league. You need that defense, and that usually comes from having the right personnel around your stars uh, than just that offense from your superstars on the other end. Uh, we say goodnight to the Lakers. It may be premature, but it's inevitable, so it'll, it'll work for some
0: time. Thanks for listening to the Spain & Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.